Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. Thanks for being here. It is Friday, January 15, 2021. We start the show today with question marks. Lots of question marks all around me. Questions abound today about what the real story is behind the storming of the Capitol. Who knew what, when, and was all this planned in advance? And by the way, if so, did any of this come to the attention of leadership in Congress? And what about the lack of security? How in the world did that happen? So now, new today, retired Army Lieutenant General Russell Honore has been named by Nancy Pelosi to lead the security review of the U.S. Capitol. The Speaker of the House made the announcement this afternoon as Congress begins the search for answers. When we're talking about security, we have to talk about truth and trust. In order to serve here with each other, we must trust that people have respect for their oath of office respect for this institution. We must trust each other, respecting the people who sent us here. We must also have the truth, and, when, and that will be looked into. Uh, the, uh, if, in fact, it is found that members of Congress were accomplices to this insurrection, if they aided and abetted the crime, there may have to be actions taken beyond the Congress and, and uh, in terms of prosecution for that. It, it, again, the investigation uh, will tell us uh, uh, what we need to know to have truth so that we can trust the system that we have here. And um, it is uh, it's so sad. Imagine like 10 days ago, as I said, we, we really lost our innocence in this because we always prepare to protect and defend from all enemies, foreign. But the Constitution oath also says, and domestic. And now we have to protect ourselves from enemies, domestic. How close within the, the investigation uh, will, will, let us, will let us know. I said, Pelosi on the Hill today with a call for answers on Capitol Hill security. We should also point out that the Justice Department's inspector general has also opened a review into the DOJ's role in response to the riot at the U.S. Capitol. So we're going to get a, a closer look at the intelligence behind the scenes. And speaking of national intelligence and answers, it looks like we're going to be getting a lot more answers about the bogus Russian collusion storyline, as John Solomon is reporting at JustTheNews.com. President Trump has ordered that a treasure trove of documents be declassified that will now only show this whole narrative to be false, not only show it to be false, but we're also about to see a little bit of the secrets that show up uh, when all of this thing was pretty much a big setup from the get-go. John Solomon uh, here with more. John, good to see you, sir. Good to be with you, David. Well, we've got two big stories. Uh, let's we start do. with Nancy Pelosi and some of this Capitol Hill security. Uh, what, what can you tell us about the story going forward here? Well, first, General Honoré has got a great appointment for this. He's got a lot of respect on both sides of the aisle, and I think if there's a serious investigation, he's a 
sort of figurehead that can engender confidence. That's good. He's commanding. He knows the system. He's good at security. And uh, I think we'll, we'll learn a lot if he is allowed to do a full investigation. Um, as always is the case in these big tragedies, whether it's Benghazi, 9-11, the uh, Capitol siege, you never get the full story the first day because it takes time. Fog of war. You don't, you don't even begin to understand all the facts until a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. What we know now that's so different from the instant reaction we all had is that the uh, effort to breach the Capitol occurred 20 minutes before the president ended his speech, that the FBI had warning signs as early as January 4th that there was going to be planned attacks on the Capitol, including efforts to kill police officers. Mm. And they uh, immediately alerted the Joint Terrorism Task Force here in Washington. That brings all the different police departments together. Capitol Police are part of that. That spurred a series of conversations in which the Capitol Police hears from the uh, Defense Department, hey, we're willing to give you troops. What do you need a National Guard? Mm -hmm. The chief goes to the sergeant-at-arms at at the Senate and House and gets it. We don't want any troops in the Capitol. Bad optics. And that's where the crisis really begins. Two days before all the violence we saw, that's the real focal point. And now I'm beginning to hear that some intelligence uh, about a possible violent Wednesday, January 6th, was available the week before. And FBI agents may have even gone out to local people in their local field office and say, don't go to Washington, don't get involved in this. This could be one of those FBI 9-11 type moments where the FBI knew more and the law enforcement community knew more and didn't quite act on it the way that they probably wish they do today. Well, if the FBI knew more and law enforcement knew more and the sergeant of arms knew more, how in the world does this not get past uh, get past or into leadership's uh, orbit yeah. at all in it's Congress? A tremendous question, right? The, the One of the fundamental questions, and Speaker Pelosi had a great conference, but she didn't take questions today. It's very That's important. Right. She's not been taking any questions. What did you know and when did you know it? If, if the sergeant at arms is hearing there might be violence, they want to send guards, natural guardsmen to the, the Capitol, what are the chances they don't brief their bosses? If they didn't, it's a tremendous failure of communication. If they did, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Mitch McConnell may know more than the public knows about their knowledge. And we need to find out, what did you tell people? Were you against the troops? What other provisions did you have? Very important questions that are going to be answered in the next few weeks. Well, and they also made it like this was a spontaneous situation, and hence the rush to impeach all of a sudden. And they, I mean, it was like a narrative that, it, but they knew on the front end, well, I say they knew, they potentially knew on the front end. If they did, that's a real problem. We, um, I've talked to a lot of people in the last 24 hours in the security community, intelligence community, and what I've been hearing are some interesting things. And there's some parallels to the Benghazi attack, mm. and where we lost four Americans in uh, the compound, the U.S. consulate there. And remember, the original story was there was a spontaneous riot spurred by a anti-Muslim tape that angered the local Libyan pilot, and they stormed the thing. Right. Then we found out, no, it was a al-Qaeda operative that had planned it weeks in advance, and the U.S. had some inkling in its intelligence files that they were thinking of cre- creating some mischief there. In fact, Christopher, uh, the um, the ambassador, mm-hmm. uh, now I'm going to draw a blank at his name. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but... That the, guy. Uh, yep, uh, he... He actually had fears going there. He was worried because he was hearing word that there might be some violence that occurred when he went there. He went anyways as a brave American, lost his life. Uh, But I think there's some parallels in the story, the original story, and then how it unravels. Mm -hmm. And today, obviously different circumstances, different country. We don't expect these things ever to happen on our soil. Well, we know there were fringe supporters inside the Capitol, obviously, that were part of this. I hate to call it even part of imagination, but they they, they bought into what Trump was was talking about. However, we know this now, this guy John Sullivan is out there. An arrest. uh, He's not a Trump guy. He's an anti-Trump guy. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. So John Sullivan is a a leftist anarchist, I think is what the law enforcement would call him. Utah, He's from Utah. He was charged last August 
with participation in a riot where persons were shot. Uh, and so he has a pending criminal charge. He's here in Washington. Mm -hmm. He originally claims he was a journalist right. filming it. And then he turns over his journalism tapes to the FBI. And the FBI says, wait, he wasn't a journalist. He was egging it on. He was urging them to burn down the Capitol, to take items from the Capitol, urging them to storm the Capitol. He has now been charged with three federal offenses. Wow. All right, let's, let's move over to the FBI sure. uh, and some of these declassified documents that apparently the president is going to order to be de declassified? That's right. The order has already been given. Tell us. So it's in the process of uh, the final declassification. These are about a foot, foot and a half tall stack of documents from the FBI and the Justice Department. All the things that the FBI and DOJ didn't want it to release to the American public, but have been in the hands of John Durham, the special prosecutor. Mm -hmm. Really important stuff. There's going to be a million little revelations. Sure. But at 30,000 feet, there are just two or three really big revelations. Mm -hmm. The first is Christopher Steele tells the FBI, the reason I planted the Russia narrative story in the media was I was concerned that Hillary Clinton and the email scandal was coming back at the, at the end of the election. So I took my gloves off and changed the subject in the American media. He's a foreigner interfering in our election. He admits his motive was to help Hillary Clinton. He also admits his motive was he didn't like Donald Trump because he thought Donald Trump would be bad for Britain. A foreigner acting in our election because of his own internal interest in his own country. Mm -hmm. uh, Hillary Clinton wow. paid this guy. She has to own his conduct. So the entire Russia collusion story really was a deflation effort to distract the American public away from Hillary Clinton's email problem and onto a bogus narrative to vilify, as the CIA said in those documents, vilify Donald Trump on false grounds. Wow. And there's a whole long list of people attached to this that knew darn well, if you will, about some of what was going on. Oh, yeah. And it was peddled for months and years. Years. I mean, th this interview where uh, Christopher Steele gives us all up is in the, the fall of 2017. Mueller didn't finish his investigation until April of 2019, two, a year and a half, two years of unnecessary angst over a false story. What's your sense of the president's uh, view of this at this point? I mean, it's not a kind of a burn the house down, but I mean, at this point, what's do you think the reasoning behind I doing think this? it's, a, you know, he said he was going to do it. He'd like to check every checkbox on his list of promises. <laughs> uh, I think he views this as a historical legacy issue, which is. I've been saying all along I was a victim of the FBI. Democrats say no. Republicans say yes. You read the documents yourself and you tell me, is this how you want your FBI to be acting? Do you really want them meddling in an investigation, using a Hillary Clinton operative that they know is trying to meddle in the election, know that his dossier is wrong? And do it. there's other interesting things. There are ties to his impeachment. Uh, uh, one of the big revelations that Christopher Steele makes in 2017, a year after he's been fired from the FBI, is... You know how I got my original primary subsource? From Fiona Hill, who was Fiona Hill, one of the major star witnesses of impeachment. She connects him to the Russian uh, source that gives him all the bad dope that goes into his dossier. Mm -hmm. and, and now there's a lot of questions about why didn't we know this during impeachment? What does Fiona Hill know? Now, she may have been victimized by the guy just as well. But a big taint connection between impeachment and Russia, no one expected. Wow, that's fascinating. And just to kind of marry these two stories we've been talking about together, this idea of the trickle, trickle, trickle effect. And it all comes from, in essence, when you're investigating and, it, and it's just, uh, you, you got to get into open source, got to get into the records. Yeah, listen, facts are stubborn things and you got to get them out. And a lot of times emotion creates one story and a factual basis changes that story over time. I think the Capitol Police... Uh, riot, the terrible uh, tragedy there is going to go the same right as Russia collusion. The story is going to look very different at the end than where we started. John Solomon, great to see you. Great Good to be with you, David. As always, thank, thank you, you so much. All right, right. editor-in-chief John Solomon of JustTheNews.com. Of course, you can catch it all. I'm going to repeat myself. 
at justthenews.com. When we come back, the guy with the most letters in his name, I can confirm today he wins hands down, Hans von Spakovsky. Try saying that five times fast. He's with the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk to him about whether or not you can actually convict and have a trial for the president of the United States when, wait for it, he's no longer president. He's an actual citizen of the United States. Back in a moment. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to the uh, water cooler, everybody. Uh, have you heard Donald Trump's been impeached? <laughs> Yet again, uh, the, the final vote, 232 uh, to 197. Uh, once again, uh, 10 Republicans, bless their heart, that's in air quotes, by the way, and a bit sarcastic, um, voting to impeach the president. Um, boy, I tell you what, if there was just a few more days left, maybe they can impeach him a third time. Actually, there's time for that. There's time for another third impeachment. Why not? He's already set a record. Not necessarily the record Donald Trump wants to uh, set, by the way. I want to bring in uh, Hans von Spakovsky, a senior fellow at Heritage Foundation. Hans, always great to see you, sir. Thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, the, uh, the impeachment vote is done in the House. We now move to the Senate, or do we move to the Senate? I mean, there's this constitutional question as to whether or not the Senate can even have a trial, uh, because this just in, after January 20th, President Trump will no longer be President Trump. What's your take, Hans? Well, there's disagreement amongst constitutional scholars on this. I mean, for example, Michael Ludwig, who's a former Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals judge, um, he, he says you can't do that. You know, the impeachment process is only there to be used to remove uh, current federal officials. And once you're a private citizen, impeachment doesn't apply to you. On the other hand, you have Lawrence Tribe, you know, well, well known constitutional law professor from Harvard saying, well, you can do it. Frankly, uh, I think Tribe is wrong. I think that impeachment only applies to current federal officials. And that if you're holding a trial in the Senate over someone who is now a private citizen, that comes awfully close to resembling what's called a bill of attainder. And bill of attainders are strictly prohibited in the U.S. Constitution. For folks who don't know what that is, yeah. uh, bill, bills of attainder were used by the English Parliament to go after individuals they didn't like. They would hold trials <laughs> in the Parliament and find someone guilty there. And our framers of the Constitution said, uh, we're not going to allow that. If you're charged with a crime or anything else, it has to be in a court of law. The legislature can't do that. And that's awfully, uh, that, that's what it looks like if they're going to hold a trial of someone who's a private citizen. Right. Well, you just mentioned private citizen. That's my point. So, I mean, this goes down right. a dangerous road. If you're going to. It does. Uh, yeah, because then Donald Trump at that point is a private citizen and not a sitting officer. No, that's, that's right. And look, if they can go ahead with this, uh, and frankly, I don't doubt the Democrats will go ahead with it because, as you know, they have a very contemptuous attitude towards the, the Constitution. But look, it means that you or I, they're setting a precedent. You or I could be 
they could hold a trial against us in the Senate uh, and vote, for example, to say that we should never be allowed to hold a federal office. Me in particular, I, I used to be an official of the United States when I was a commissioner on the FEC. And under this precedent, they could supposedly hold a trial to go after me for my behavior 10 years ago when I was on mm. the FEC. Yeah, that, that, that's dangerous, dangerous precedent to set for sure. Uh, Alan Dershowitz was on our show earlier today, the uh, Harvard Law professor. Uh, I want right. you to uh, listen to what his take on the constitutionality of this is. Yeah, Alan, I do want to get to the president and uh, what the Democrats are trying to do yet again, second time, uh, in essence, in two in, in almost about a year. I mean, we had this situation last year. Uh, yeah. what, what is your reaction, what Democrats are doing here on impeachment? What's your view? A, it's unconstitutional. It violates several provisions of the Constitution. Number one, it's not a high crime and misdemeanor. Number two, it's protected by the Constitution and by the debate and speech clause and by our general traditions of uh, free and open dialogue in the marketplace of ideas. The article of impeachment basically suggests you can impeach a president for a speech that virtually everybody, every constitutional scholar acknowledges, is protected by the Constitution. Hans, we should point out he was talking about, obviously, the unconstitutionality of the actual impeachment, but he did go on to say that he thought a Senate trial was also unconstitutional. Uh, and Tom Cotton, by the way, says the same thing. He said this. I want to play uh, what Tom Cotton said. He said the Senate lacks constitutional authority to conduct impeachment proceedings against a former president. The founders designed the impeachment process as a way to remove office holders from public office, not an inquest against private citizens, which is exactly what you said. So where do you think this all leaves us, Hans, at the end of the day here? Well, like I said, I think, unfortunately, Democrats, will, when they take control, uh, are going to go forward with this because they don't really believe in the limitations of the Constitution. And they're going to do it despite the fact that constitutionally they don't have the authority to do it. Frankly, the best thing that could happen, which would throw a wrench in the machinery, is remember, the impeachment provision also says that the chief justice shall preside over an impeachment trial in the Senate. And frankly, the proper thing for the Chief Justice here to do is to refuse to preside over the uh, the hearing or the trial because it's unconstitutional for them to be doing it. If the Chief Justice refuses to do that, I I'm not sure how Democrats would be able to deal with that. Well, that brings up a couple of different quick questions. Number one, do, do you think, I can't imagine John Roberts even, like, he, he doesn't seem like a guy that would necessarily do that necess uh, necessarily. But more than that, before this even gets to a trial, could this not could this case not get to the Supreme Court? I would think some, can that happen somehow, some way? Yes, I mean the president, I think, could immediately file an action uh, with the courts, particularly with the Supreme Court, claiming that it is unconstitutional uh, for them to be holding a trial. The problem here is the court might not want to take up the case because they might say, well, this is a political question which we are not going to get into. Um, and so they might avoid it. So either the Supreme Court could take the case and say it's not proper to go forward, or they could avoid it because they say it's a political question. And then they, again, the Chief Justice would be put into the position of deciding whether he's going to preside over what Alan Dershowitz and others, including me, think is an unconstitutional uh, trial in the Senate. Well, it may be a political question, but at the same time, if Donald Trump files suit, he's a private citizen filing suit. Well, he is, but but they might decide that uh, this is a political question 
to be decided by Congress as to whether or not this can go forward. And they have a general doctrine that when it comes to those kind of congressional political questions, they don't usually get involved. But this is a very unique situation, one we haven't ever had occur before in our entire history. Yeah, Hans von Spakovsky, always great to see you. And uh, love to get you on after January 20th to see where this goes sure. if and when they have a trial. Thanks. All right. Right Thanks. Thanks, Hans. Uh, very interesting. I got to tell you, I'm going to be straight up with you. My head's spinning uh, because there's a lot to consider. Can you imagine Chief Justice John Roberts saying, no, I don't think I'm going to preside over the trial, huh? Now, I don't see that happening at all, but then again, you never know. All right, when we come back, Scott Rasmussen, host of Just the Polls, talking about magination and Republicans and the breakdown therein. Back in a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. Uh, the future of the Republican Party. What's the deal? How's it going to work? Uh, what's Trump's role in all of this going to be? A lot of questions to be answered. We're going to explore that throughout um, the rest of the uh, year, <laughs> which is a long time, actually. 300 and, uh, I don't know, 51 days? I, I, I don't know. I don't know how many days left in this year. I have no clue. Uh, but Scott Rasmussen, my guess is he's a numbers guy. You know how many days are left in this year. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but... Look, I don't want to, that's not the big topic we're discussing today, but there Sorry. are 350 days left after today. So, and you know, we're in good faith. I knew you would know that answer. I knew it. I set you up. All right, Scott, let's go to your, <laughs> let's go to your latest poll here. You've you got polls, uh, as we like to say, up the yin-yang. Uh, but here's one. Why don't you take us through it? Yeah, so you know, it's important to re remember when this poll was taken. This was last weekend, right after the events of January 6th and the assault and takeover of the Capitol. We asked Republicans, do you identify more with the Republican Party? Do you consider yourself more of a Republican or do you align more with MAGA, MAGA Nation? And only one out of five, 19%, gave the MAGA answer. I wish I had asked this question before the events of January 6th so we had a comparison. But at this point, you know, it's a pretty small segment of the Republican Party who say that's their primary allegiance. Now, most Republicans still believe the president won the election. Most Republicans still prefer the policies of Donald Trump. Uh, but it's not clear where things will go from here. Well, you know what's interesting? Count me in the not sure 7%. And, and here's why. Because what does that mean exactly? In other words, when you say MAGA nation or you say Republican, that means different things to different people. So I wonder what the polling is going to show as you move forward, because it might be hard to kind of determine what MAGA nation means because it's, it's different for folks. Well, it sure is. In fact, I did do an open-ended question on the survey. And I said, well, how would you describe it? Right. What does it mean to you? And people who identified with MAGA Nation said things like patriot, constitutional, um, pro-America. You know, these were very positive, citizen, uplifting comments. Uh, people who identified with Republican had more mixed views. Some uh, were very negative about MAGA. Most were sort of in the, well, you know, maybe not too carefully thought out. 
And then when we got to independent voters and Democrats, the predominant terms uh, used to describe MAGA nation were racist and fascist and really very, very negative terms. So the, the word, like many words in our political discourse, have come to mean different things to different segments of society. Yeah, it makes me wonder what's going to happen in the future with polling uh, as it relates to how uh, you poll MAGA nation and whether or not that's going to be a drag on the Republican Party or if uh, the Nikki Haley's and the Tom Cotton's and whoever else, Tim Scott, whoever else runs for president, Ted Cruz, how they court that that group. I think that's going to be an interesting dissection, kind of like a biological political experiment. Well, it is. But, you know, I think we get hung up on the terms right now. Yeah. Uh, one of the great challenges in polling over the last decade is dealing with Obamacare. For a long time, if you asked about Obamacare, you got one answer. If you asked about the Affordable Care Act, you got another. Well, by the, by the time we're in 2021, if you ask somebody about Obamacare, it's just the healthcare system they've been living with for a decade. They don't know how to distinguish it between this and something else. Um, same with the Tea Party. The definitions of the Tea Party have shifted over time. So I don't think it's a question of focusing on what MAGA nation means now or going forward. It's the issues. And look, I think Donald Trump, more than anything else, highlighted that there's an awful lot of people who fundamentally reject the elitist attitudes about America, the elitist attitudes that we should trust bureaucrats to know what's best for the rest of us, that we should you know, cede more authority to the federal government. Uh, it doesn't mean they want to do things. You know, there, there's a there's a there's an attitude there that people are still trying to find a way to give voice to and to be effective with. Speaking of Donald Trump, what's your sense of his staying power? Uh, it, too early, obviously, to tell, but, but what's, your, what's your sense of, uh, it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere. Well, I'm sure he's not going anywhere. Uh, it does appear from the early polling that the, the last few weeks have hurt the president's standing uh, to some degree. Not clear how much, not clear how lasting it is. But, you know, when you talk about any kind of a performance, whether it's a music performance or a presidency, what people remember is how you started and how you ended. And I suspect the last few weeks will weigh heavily in Donald Trump's legacy. And that's that's going to be harmful to it. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, this is kind of like a geek out question on the methodology. But but how do you go about some of the methodology in these polls? I think people are interested in that. In other words, uh, is this uh, phone online in person? Like, how, how does it help me break it down? And how big is a sample? And does it depend poll to poll? Help us out a little bit on that, Scott. Well, look, with every poll, it's a little bit different depending on what you're trying to accomplish. If you're doing a political poll, it's different than if you're doing a branding poll for a, a corporation or trying to understand what messages work. Uh, I've written several columns since election 2020 saying the era of live operator phone polling has come and gone. Uh, I don't believe in it at all. My polls are conducted both online and to reach a small segment of the population. I do about 15 or 20 percent of the polls. Uh, using automated phone technology, this is primarily to, to reach older people who live in rural areas because they're not connected as much to the online community. When you talk about online, I reach out to people through apps. I reach out to people through text. I have lists of registered voters that you work off of. Uh, the challenge with all of this is to get a good sample, a good representative sample. And you know, from a pollster's point of view, the good old days were when Ma Bell ran everything. And by your phone number, I knew where you lived and I knew everything about you. 
We don't have that era anymore. Uh, so we have to be really careful. We Polls typically undersample, unless you're really careful, they typically undersample the number of people without a college degree, the number of people who live in rural areas, and the number of people who are politically conservative. So you have to really make sure those groups are represented and accounted for. Yeah, and I would think that also when you have to deal with registered voters versus likely voters uh, versus, uh, uh, what is it else? Registered likely, and there's another one, I forgot. Yeah, Look, if you're asking me to do a poll, of, a national poll of adults, I'm very comfortable with my sample because I have really good measurements to, to yep. use to, to create the sample. If you're asking me about registered voters, I still feel pretty good, although in a lot of states they don't ID uh, voters by party, so it's a little more challenging. Right. When you get to likely voters, that's where it gets to be difficult because we saw in this yeah. last election a lot of unlikely voters showed up to cast their ballots. Scott Rasmussen, always great uh, to see you. And that is a nice fashion statement today on the show. I just want to say. All right. Well, thanks, David. Thank you so much. I tell you what, I'm coming in that, Madison. Blue and white for me on Monday. Uh, all right. We're back in a moment with uh, presidential historian Doug Weed. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. Uh, we have a lot of show to get to uh, still, believe it or not. And it's already been a chock full of information, including John Solomon, who broke some news at the top of the show, uh, talking about uh, the declassification of uh, FBI documents that are coming from the president of the United States. I want to bring uh, Doug Weed in now, presidential historian and author of the book Inside Trump's White House, the real story of his presidency. And Doug Weed, always great to have you back on the show, sir. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. Well, John Solomon did talk about this at the top of the show, this idea that the president's going to declassify a lot of documents coming up here in the next few days about the Russian collusion hoax. Uh, what's your take about where that kind of fits in the, uh, uh, the historical legacy of Donald Trump here? Well, uh, David, what fascinated me in your interview with John Solomon is he talked about how the, the Steele dossier uh, Steele himself said the purpose of it was to divert media attention from the Hillary Clinton emails. That was the controversy. And what's mm -hmm. interesting to me is everybody ignores the Hillary Clinton emails. What were they? What were these terrible secrets that she didn't want anybody to know? And we know what they are now because they're available for us. And one of the more controversial ones that should get some attention is the attempt to infiltrate and co-opt the Catholic Church. These were emails that were back and forth to John Podesta, the chairman of the Hillary Clinton campaign, that talked about a, quote, Catholic spring, just like uh, the Arab spring that allowed all those nations to throw off the yoke of their dictatorships. The hope was, after Hillary Clinton won, that they would work with key allies in the Catholic Church in attempt to change their doctrines uh, on many issues and to co-opt the Catholic Church. What's striking about that mm. is for years, leftists have said, religious people have no business in the political world. They shouldn't talk about politics. They should stay out of it. But here are politicians attempting 
to infiltrate the church and change its doctrines. That's pretty astounding. Yeah, no, for sure. And it kind of transitions me into my next question about religious liberty and what President Trump has done from a historical legacy standpoint in that area. You know, it is the president who says, I brought Merry Christmas back. Now you can say Merry Christmas, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, but the bottom line is there is a historical legacy as it relates to uh, what he has done on the life issue and the re religious liberty issue. Yeah, and uh, freedom of speech, which is so mm -hmm. important to pastors. Uh, as you know, many theological books are now uh, uh, boycotted by Amazon. They're unavailable. You cannot buy them. That's as close as you can get to the Nazis' burning of books. Certain books allowed, certain books not allowed. Amazon's making that decision. So some theologians write books, distinguished theologians, and their books are unavailable. And with the end of bookstores, Amazon's the only place you can get them. I'll tell you what struck me, David, was we've had these divisions before in American history, the two biggest, the Civil War and then 1801 when partisans, partisanship first emerged. Washington hated that idea, but his cabinet was split. Two parties came out of it. And in 1801, Thomas Jefferson became president. And at the time, there were Federalists and there were Republicans, which was the forerunner of the Democratic Party. And in his inaugural address, Jefferson said, we are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Those were his exact words, uh, trying to bring the country together in unity. And the second big division was the Civil War. And I think of that second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln, where he says, with malice towards none and charity towards all. Mm -hmm. And compare that to Joe Biden, who gets elected president of the United States. And I regret this. I'm sorry he did it, but uh, I can't change it. Where his first address to the nation is to attack his predecessor, who he beat, he won, Donald Trump, and to call his followers terrorists. So I hope he strikes a different tone in the inauguration. This may be his last chance to try yeah. to make a good first impression. He's not off to a great unity start, uh, for sure, uh, Doug. Uh, as we monitor your Twitter feed, don't take it the wrong way. It's not like we're the federal government or Jack Dorsey <laughs> or anything, but we, do, we are monitoring your Twitter feed. And here's what you wrote. Uh, and we want to put that up. It says, two impeachments will only get historians to notice all of Trump's greatest accomplishments. And I can just say this. I'm so glad Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo were not writing uh, the, the legacy of Donald Trump. Uh, but historians will, and a lot of liberal historians will, which is a concern, obviously. What do you think his greatest legacy is going to be moving uh, in the future? Well, peace and prosperity, that's the gold standard of presidents. He's the first president in 40 years not to have invaded somebody. You can't wipe away the Abraham Accords. These are huge accomplishments. What is Biden going to do? Move the embassy back from Jerusalem? Right. Is he going to refund Germany and all these countries, their NATO money that Donald Trump got them to give? There's, is he going to tear down the wall uh, uh, with Mexico? It's going to be hard for him. He can't go back from USMCA. It's so much better than the corrupt NAFTA treaty, and everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot in his legacy that can't be reversed, and those will be the pillars that they stand on. Is he going to change the law that allowed Trump and allows a president to fire 
uh, bad employees? Is he going to bring back the nurses who allowed veterans to die on their gurneys in the hallways of the Veterans Administration or workers in the bureaucracy at the Department of Labor who were spending six hours a day on pornography? And Trump changed the laws so that bad civil servants could be fired. There's so much in his legacy that will stand because Biden won't reverse it. Everyone agrees it's better. January 6th notwithstanding, he is one of the most consequential presidents in the United States. Would you, would you agree with that statement or am I wrong on that? Yes, and very impactful, some of the things I mentioned, but the list is so long. One that doesn't get any attention but comes home to you because you know so much about it, are the 55 hostages he brought home. That's right. The media gave it no attention whatsoever. But think of that, David. Think that some of these hostages had been held since George W. Bush and for all eight years of Obama, and they were left to language overseas and their American families mm -hmm. couldn't talk about it to the media. The yeah. U.S. government was threatening them, saying, keep your mouth shut. You're right. hurting our chances of bringing them home. But Donald Trump found a way, and it, it yep. was a different formula for each one. Doug Weed, presidential historian, great perspective. Probably not going to hear that on CNN, so we're glad you're here, sir. Thank you. <laughs> you may not hear it here anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh, gosh, good point. Oh, look, they pulled the plug. Just kidding, that's us. Uh, back in a moment with the last sip. Welcome back to the last... Oh, you caught me. Sorry. Welcome back to the last sip. Uh, see, because the, the, the sip mug, whatever, was over there. Um, you know what? We need we need harmony in this country, not e-harmony. Uh, that's from 15 years ago. But we need harmony in this country for sure because we're wearing a lot of layers. Are you know? Are we MAGA? Are we conservatives? Are we liberal? Are we Antifa? Are we BLM? Are we uh, REM? Just kidding. Uh, anyhow, uh, here, the Babylon Bee uh, summed it all up. They're a satirical site, and take a look at this. The election was rigged. Yeah. Take this. Hey, no violence. You must not really be a proud boy. You must be Antifa. Oh, yeah? Well, you're Black Lives Matter. That's right. Now, let's peacefully protest. Hey, that's not peaceful. You must be a, a cop. Well, you're not Antifa. You're a white supremacist. I bet you think you're real clever, don't you, you actual Nazi? At least I'm not in the KKK. Better than being Code Pink, CNN anchor, Russian spy, incel, crossfitter, juggalo, all the kitty. We're the same, bro. We are the same, bro. That's beautiful. <laughs> two quick questions. Why are there two guys without shirts on the air, uh, number one? Uh, and number two, aw, kitty, that's so cute. Um, but on a serious note, they're absolutely right, because at the end, they held hands, they held fists, they held fists. You know what I'm trying to say. They locked arms, because you know what? We're all Americans. Yes, let's be honest. Some of us are crazy. I mean, that's true. And you know what? If you're crazy and you're storming the Capitol, 
get locked up and don't come back for a while. But the truth of the matter is we do need harmony in this country. And so what does that mean? It means sometimes we need to look beyond Republican or Democrat or liberal conservative. I don't know. You're thinking, oh, great. Just start eating some granola. You're so mushy gushy. No. Look, the bottom line is this. We need to start coming up with some common ground figures here. In other words, if you're a Republican and a Democrat, you're a liberal and conservative, how about you don't talk politics and maybe you come together over the fact that you both like the same baseball team or you like the same music or what do you have in common that you can at least agree with? How about we start there? It's just small. It's just a little. Something to think about. I'll think about it over the last second. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, I decided to take a little bit more time for myself. Thank you very much. It's a narcissistic thing to do. Normally, Sophie Mann is here or Nick Ballacy or Daniel Payne. But no, hey, you know what? Uh, I said, <laughs> I need a little bit more me time on screen. So let's do that, shall we? Uh, let's run through some of the uh, top headlines and start with uh, Lieutenant, uh, retired uh, Lieutenant General uh, Russell Honore. Uh, there he is. Uh, and he's going to be leading the national security uh, risk assessment team, according to Nancy Pelosi. In other words, what happened at the U.S. Capitol? How in the world did all that happen? So uh, keep an eye on him. We will keep an eye on him here on JustTheNews.com. Uh, in addition, we had John Solomon on the show today, and I want to read you a little bit about what's up at JustTheNews.com. Uh, Trump is declassifying a trove of FBI memos uh, exposing Steele's motivations, ties to impeachment witnesses. And this is what John Solomon writes uh, and it's coming here in the next 24 to 48 hours, by the way. So check out justthenews.com on all of this. Among the bombshell revelations is an admission by Steele that he violated his confidential human source agreement with the FBI and leaked information from his dossier to the news media in the final weeks of the election because he wanted to counteract new revelations in the Hillary Clinton email scandal that were hurting her election efforts. The former foreign intelligence officer made the confession in a fall 2017 interview with agents. That is by uh, John Solomon at JustTheNews.com. And by the way, that was the whole point with Christopher Steele, that he had this conflicting allegiance. Uh, he had that allegiance to Hillary Clinton. Uh, also making news, and we want to put this up on the screen, uh, despite 10 Republican impeachment defections, many still see the GOP as Trump's party. Uh, this is reported uh, by uh, Kerry Sheffield over at JustTheNews.com. And I will... Uh, I'm sorry, did I say Kerry Sheffield, Nicholas Ballacy? Uh, and this is talking basically about, hold on, the media is going to say this is no longer Trump's party, but it is Trump's party. And that is definitely something we're going to be looking at uh, further on. They go on to say this, the journalists writing articles about how the GOP is no longer behind Trump should understand that 197 House Republicans actually voted against impeachment, she tweeted. Only 10 voted yes. 96% of the party voted no. And that's actually a really good point. Bottom line is the party's still with Trump, but we'll see how that factors in, or I should, should say plays out when Nikki Haley and others start to run for president. On the show Monday, by the way, uh, Tommy Laren will be with us. We also understand Madison, we have Louis Gomer here, I think. Uh, he's here too. I think so. I might be making that up. The bottom line is it's gonna be a great show. I can't wait to watch.